Church, glad to see you guys. I hope you guys do come on out to uh, Christmas Eve. It's going to be a good time as we celebrate the birth of Christ and uh, we do it together as a family. It's going to be a good time. I hope you guys are able to make it out. As we get it, before I get into everything and we stand for the reading of God's Word, I want to remind you, you guys are taking a peek at the, at the bulletins and uh, end of your giving has been fantastic. And uh, just remind you, we've got like 10 days left and then with most of our budget comes in at the end of the year. And so uh, please continue uh, going generously with that. We're, we've hit around like the 55% mark. Uh, your salvation is not tied to it by any stretch of imagination. There's no guilt trip there, whatever. Um, it's just that you guys are a generous, generous church, and we do these financial reports at the end of the year, and things are going well, but we need it to continue, and uh, most of our stuff comes in in these last couple weeks, so there's that. Um, but we're going to go ahead and jump into God's Word this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. We're going to be in Psalm 8 today, and so everybody who's been following along in this series, and you got the bookmark, and you were expecting something different. This is one of these audible weeks that I decided to change it up on you a little bit, so please don't hold it against me. It still is God's Word, and so I think it's valuable. Um, here's what it says in Psalm chapter 8. To the choir master, according to the Giddith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things underneath his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Heavenly Father, that's our one cry, unified cry this morning. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, we praise you. We give you glory today. And Lord, for the person that's coming today that has been asking that exact same question, who am I, God? Do I have any value? Do I have any dignity or meaning? Father, I pray that you would meet them here today with a resounding yes. God, I pray that you would expand our affection for image bearers of God all around the world today. God, that we would see what you've done. And Father, that you would meet with us as we uh, get into this psalm. We give you our time today. We love you, praise you, and thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. Uh, Merry Christmas. I just wanted to say that. We're a couple days away. Merry Christmas, church. Uh, I love this time of year for so many different reasons. I love the, the gift giving, the generosity, and things like that. Uh, how many of you guys still have some <laughs> gift giving to do? You still got to go shopping. You missed your, fortunately, like everything's on Amazon nowadays, and so it kind of changes everything there. But uh, I love gift giving and generosity. I've enjoyed seeing this play out in the life of our church, especially over the past semester. Uh, like I've said so many times before, one of the things I'm thankful for especially is the generosity of our church body here. We've seen it play out in so many different ways, especially over the course of this past semester through our community grants, the different ways that the groups have gathered together to encourage our community to invest financially and with our time and effort and love into our surrounding community. Uh, we've done it through Operation Christmas Child. I think we gave away about 250 different boxes here with Operation Christmas Child. How many of you guys were involved with Operation Christmas Child? My guess is 250 of you. Um, so um, <laughs> just said that. But anyway, like fun story. Two different times I went to Africa. I was once in Uganda, once in Tanzania. Came across children that were carrying stuffed animals that they received from Operation Christmas Child. Right? This is a, these are boxes, shoe boxes that we pack full of gifts. 
uh, tangible items and things of that nature. It came across two children in two different countries, two different trips, carrying around little stuffed animals that they received from that. And so just to say, incredible contribution. Uh, Giving Tree was a big one we participated in this past year. 40 different families and an additional 35 kids in our immediate surrounding area. So these have names and touches and people that we interact with on a regular basis coming around and providing Christmas and, and uh, support and family uh, giving and things of that nature. Precious Stones, is a, Precious Stones is a gathering of people, about 40, 50 of you guys that come together and you've packed and you've cooked and you've packed together these baskets to care for about 25 individuals who are shut-ins here at Dallas Bible Church, meaning they're not able to drive around. They are uh, sick and largely at home maybe. They don't have a whole lot of interaction with the church anymore and so the church came together and you guys on your own initiative, not on the initiative of our church leadership or anything like that, you came family and you made food and care baskets and you went to their homes sent them flowers, and you just loved on different families that are around here. Uh, it's just what you do. Uh, $30,000 in benevolence to families in our, in our church body that have immediate financial crisis or counseling needs in the past few months. Uh, you come together, and we've been supporting you like that. And of course, my, one of my favorites is just a couple weeks ago, we talked about Feed My Starving Children, this ministry located here in Richardson. Some of you are involved in. Uh, Ricky, she stood up here on the stage and invited you to come and uh, pack bags and to feed with Feed My Starving Children. She asked for about 120 volunteers, and I think we got about 235 signed up, right? And so in January, on January 15th and the 22nd, we're going to have one group, that's Wednesday night, going about 120 of us, going to be going out there and going to be packing about, I may be off on my numbers, I think the, 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 the donation is supporting about 22,000 children or 22,000 meals for kids over the course of the next year. And we're going to be going to this facility, packing that food, and then sending it out ourselves that day. Again, on the 22nd, another 110, 115 of you guys are doing that. And just want to say, it's, it's a generous, generous church. And as I look back at, at what I'm grateful for, um, being able to serve here is you. And uh, what God has done in you, your generosity, the way that you love people so well. We've been talking a lot about the what. This morning, I want to talk a little bit about the why. Why do we do those things? Like, why do we care about the little halfway? Why do we care about the poor, the hungry, starving children halfway around the world? Like, why do we care about the oppressed, the abused, the persecuted, victims? Like, why do we care about the handicapped, the elderly, the unborn, and all these things? I mean, if Richard Dawkins is right, then you and I are just machines that pass on our, D our DNA from one person to the next. So why in the world do we care about whether or not a family in Sudan is able to pass on their DNA from one generation to the next? Right? Like, is it just the hope that, hey, maybe, just maybe, they're going to be able to birth the child that is able to grow up one day and maybe cure cancer? I mean, is it just because, hey, maybe they've got a family over there that there's someone that actually loves them or doesn't love them? Maybe, who knows what's going on there? Like, is that all that's going on there? I mean, let me, let me bring it a little bit closer to home. Why do you have value? Why do you have value? Why do you have dignity? I mean, for some of you, that's a very personal question, and that is the burden you came in today, and that's a very real question that you've been asking. Do I have any dignity? Do I have any value? Where does my worth actually come from? I mean, is it my accomplishments and what I'm able to contribute to this world? My, my, my intelligence, the things I'm able to do with my hands, my job, the contributions that I'm able to make? Is it just the people that love me in my immediate circle over here? Like, what about the elderly who are at a place in their life where they're not able to con contribute a whole lot anymore? Do they have any value? What about the unborn or the newborn? It's not able to do anything, literally anything, except wake, wake you up in the middle of the night, right? Like, do they have any, where does their worth and value come from? I was reading a lot of Peter Singer uh, this past week, 
I don't know if you know that name at all. Um, Peter Singer is, it a, is, a, uh, is a, a tenured professor of bioethics at Princeton University. And so he is, uh, he's arguing that newborn babies, they don't have a whole lot of value at all. In fact, here's what he writes in his book, Practical Ethics, about it. He says this, human babies are not born self-aware or capable of grasping that they exist over time. Therefore, they are not people. But animals are self-aware, and therefore, the life of a newborn is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. By the way, not random blogger, crazy person that's also like all these conspiracies. Like, we're not talking about that. We're talking about distinguished professor of bioethics at Princeton University. Massive, widely, widely distributed book, Practical Ethics. This is what's practical about morality right here. He goes on in his book and he says, Furthermore, if you compare a severely defective human infant with a non-human animal, you'll often find that the non-human has superior capacities. Only the fact that the defective infant is a member of the species Homo sapien leads it to be treated different from the animal. But species membership alone is not morally relevant. What do you think about that, church? I mean, does it matter that you're a human? Is there anything special about the fact that you are a human? That you're a member of the Homo, homo sapiens, right? Like, is there anything special or unique about that? I mean, he's going to go on and he's going to argue and say, hey, if you believe that you are special because you're a homo sapien, then, then you're actually a speciesist, right? Which is similar to a sexist, a racist, or something like that. You're a speciesist. How dare you be a speciesist? And so he goes on and he makes this argument and he says, uh, I believe that my, my, my colleague Helga, is her name, should be allowed a period of 28 days after birth to determine whether or not an infant has the same right to live as other people. Church, where does our dignity come from? Like, where does our, where does our value, where do, why do we care about the little guy? Why do we care about these things? Why do we fight so hard for him? Why do we vote for him? Why do we go halfway around the world to care for people that very few other people care about? I mean, that's what our psalm is going to help us with a little bit this morning. So again, if you have your Bible, Psalm 8 is where we're going to be. You can follow along in the text. Um, I want to jump into, you, you begin to see the answer right here in verse 1. And you begin to see the answer kind of play out just a little bit right here at the very beginning with this very simple and ecstatic statement about the majesty of God's name. That's how he begins. He says this, he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Um, anyone remember that song from the 80s? If you grew up in church, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, how majestic is your name? Like, hopefully you've forgotten most of the songs from the 80s and stuff, but um, that's one that's rang over and over again in my mind, especially as I'm kind of refreshing my, my work on, on Psalm 8. That's where it's coming from. Uh, keep in mind, the psalms are songs. That's what he's doing here. The psalmist is writing a song. He is singing this song, oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so what he's saying here is that there's something different about your name. There's something unique about the name of God. It is a majestic, and it is a beautiful name of God that is different than all of the other names. And so naturally, I'm thinking about names a little bit, and I'm immediately reminded of the fact that, hey, like names have stories, don't they? Like names are unique. Names are very, uh, there's, always there's always background stories to different names. Uh, one of my <laughs> favorite skits, it went viral about a year and a half ago, Key and Peele. Uh, you guys know what I'm talking about right here. Um, the A.A. Ron skit is a great one. Anyway, if you don't know about it, don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> Uh, but there's another one. They're, they're kind of making fun of the different names of the NFL Pro Bowl game. And I love that game. They're kind of going through there. They're kind of Hingle McDingleberry or McCringleberry or whatever his name is. And you've got uh, Le Carpetron, Duke Marriott. And right, like they're coming through here just, and uh, they're kind of making fun of some of the different names that you see in different NFL players and stuff like that. Those are make-believe, obviously. I love the skin. And everybody went viral for the fact that I think that a lot of us have identified with, hey, we know what it's like to kind of sit there and be like, okay, I want to know the name. I want to know the story behind that name. 
right? I want to know, like, how in the world did you get that name? My, my brother dated a girl in, in high school named Anita Knapp. Anita Knapp, right? Like, that was amazing, right? Like, you're sitting there going, I'm like, that's an incredible, I want to know those parents. Like, what was going on in their mind that they're like, I'm going to name my kid Anita with the last name of that. Like, that's incredible, right? Like, I'm like, I want to know what you were thinking about that. Uh, I mean, I want to know, like, what you're thinking. There's an Ima and you're a hog. You know, the Ima and the hog family. They're Adam McKinney, very famous family in Texas. Real name, high in politics and stuff around there. And it's for a long time. And so Ima and you're a hog, right? That's what they named their kids. There's incredible names there. It was a uh, I think Brian was telling me about an, uh, an Absidy. This is one of, at one of my brother's schools and stuff. And so Absidy spelled A-B-C-D-E, right? Just the first five letters of the alphabet going on right there. Like there's parts of it, like we know what it's like. We sit there and we say, okay, you hear a name. And I'm like, I want to know the story behind that name. Because that's what names do, right? Like names are not just arbitrary markers to identify who, I, who it is I'm yelling at in my home, right? Like, Caleb, get, the, get those scissors out of the socket, whatever. Like, it, it's more than that, you know? It's, it's more than that. They, they carry a name. There's a story that goes behind a lot of these different names. Um, real quick, how many of you guys put a lot of thought and intentionality when you're naming your own children, right? Like, like you're, you're, the name that you've chose rare, it reminds you of mom or dad, grandma, grandpa, this event, that event. For me, um, Caleb Asher, we named our son Caleb Asher Armstrong. Carried a lot of meaning to me, not because it was somebody in my family, but the name Caleb is, uh, happens to be one of my favorite biblical characters uh, that are kind of more hidden in the scriptures and stuff. Uh, I love Caleb's story. Caleb was one of the 12 spies. They get to the promised land and, and God's land. They send in 12 spies to check out the land and, and uh, say, hey, God's already promised. Hey, we're going to give you this land. I, I will be with you. We're going to deliver you. You're going to take this land. The 12 spies come back and everybody's like, yeah, those guys are giants. I don't know about that. But Caleb and Joshua come back, and they're like, you know what? Yeah, those guys are giants. However, my God is a giant too. And so I believe that he's going to be faithful to his promises. And so we need to go and take that land exactly as God said. Like, I love that story of faith and courage. And I pray that over my son all the time. Like, right, Lord, give him that kind of faith and courage to where he's going to continue to walk with you when no one else around him is walking with you. Like, I want to, I want to, I want to pray that blessing over him. His name, Asher, blessed. In Hebrew, it means blessed or happy. There's definition. There's meaning in that word. He was the eighth son of Jacob, and his life was blessed, and it was happy before the Lord. God, may your blessing be on him. May he live a blessed life that is full of faith and courage, that he's able to walk with you and stand strong with you all the days of his life, even when no one else around him is. And so we know what that's like, right? Like, we know what it's like to have different stories. It's why, um, it's why there's not a whole lot of Adolf's or, you know, Jezebels or Judases or anything like that around today. They carry a story. You, you say a name and immediately you begin to think up all these different images. Someone ruined those names for us a really, really long time ago. There was a friend of Jesus who sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. Finds out later on he happens to be the son of God. And that story is going to be told throughout the rest of humanity forever and ever and ever. Right? It kind of ruined the entire story for everybody else. Like there's, there's a story behind God's name. And the psalmist is coming together, and at the very beginning of the psalm, he's just saying, oh, Lord, our Lord, and he's singing. This is my, how majestic is your name? How majestic is your name? And right here at the beginning, you're going to see that the, a little bit of our value even built into the story of God's name. He begins, and, and there's two different names for the Lord. You probably picked up on this if you're following along in your Bible. It's going to say, oh, Lord, all caps, and then our Lord, capital L-O-R-D, lowercase right there. And so that's going to be the two different words, Yahweh and Adonai. In other words, O Yahweh, O Adonai. Yahweh being the personal covenant name of God, 
Uh, Jews would not even speak it because it was that holy and that other than. It was so personal to the God. That was the, God, that was the name you did not say that would be in vain. Uh, you keep that out of your vocabulary. It is holy. It is other than. But it's also the covenant name of God, which reminds the Jews that, hey, that holy and other than God, still in his infinite might and in his mercy, decided to draw near in relationship with us. And he did so in the context of covenant relationship. That holy and distant and other than God drew near and is a relational God, is a personal God, and he did it in the context of this covenant thing. That's what we're saying. Oh, Yahweh right there, personal name, covenantal God who is full of relationship and love, and he draws near to us right there. Adonai simply means our Lord or our master. It's the one, who, it's the one we are saying, he's in charge of my life. That's what we're saying, our Lord and our master. And so right there, we're beginning to see uh, the story of God's name right there play out. Uh, it's just the story that says uh, that he's a God of mercy and he's a God of might. That the God of all might has drawn near to us in mercy. And therefore, this God is in charge of my life. And the psalmist is just looking at these names and he's just saying, like, I marvel at your name. It's the name above every other name. How in the world can this holy and other than God want to draw near and be in relationship with me? In other words, you see me. I'm not too small for you to pay attention to me. And he's marveling at this. How majestic is your name? He continues in verse 2 and he says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. In other words, like in your might and in your mercy you shut the enemy down. That's what you do, God. I, I'm marveling and you're majestic and stuff because like, you silence the one who wants to take me out. Like, you, you come and you crush the one who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And what I love about what he's saying here is that he's acknowledging that, you know what, you don't, you're not even doing it in your might and in your power. You could do it in your might and power, but you happen to do it through the mouths of babies and infants. Like, that's how you do it. You silence the enemy through the mouths of babies and infants. How awesome is that? In other words, like when God goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with the enemy, he, he recruits a team of babies to go to war. Like that's kind of the image that he's picked, that, 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 that's coming up right there. Like when he plays kickball with his friends in the playground and stuff like that, he picks the kid that's typically picked last all the time. And he fills his team with afterthoughts and the B team, the C team, the D team, the, the kids that are never, ever picked for anything. Like that's what he's paying attention to. He's like, that's the picture that's right there. There is a terrifying enemy. There is a God of all might, and he fills his team with babies. Church, like, what in the world are babies going to do? Just keep the enemy awake all night? I mean, that, like, is that really what they're going to do? Like, what, what else can a baby do? Like, they can blow out a diaper. They can throw up on you as soon as you get out of the, out of the shower. You can put a clean shirt on, and they're going to ruin your shirt. I mean, apart from that, they can't do anything. And they're completely dependent upon their parents for everything which is the point of this metaphor. It's exactly the point. They know how needy they are. They, they know how needy they are. They know that he's a God of all might, that if he's a God of all might, he doesn't need Arnold Schwarzenegger to fill his team. He doesn't, need, he doesn't need the best of the best. He can fill his team with babies and people who understand how needy and dependent they actually are. And so right here at the very beginning, I just want you to notice, like, we're seeing value begin in the story of his name, but we also, throw it all, we also see it all throughout Scripture when God goes to the humble and to the needy. And then he recruits the humble and the needy to silence the enemy. This is a story of throughout scripture. He doesn't, he doesn't need the all-powerful. He doesn't need you in the weight room all the time, right? He doesn't need all the, the things that you bring to the table. He recruits the needy, the humble, the defendant, and he accomplishes his ways through them. I mean, we see this Judges chapter 7. God tells Gideon to reduce his army from 32,000 people down to 10,000, down to 300. You guys remember this story? It's one of the most ridiculous ones in scripture. 
Right? Gideon's terrified about this thing. They're about to go into war, and they're saying, hey, God, we need you on our side. Please deliver us in victory. And uh, God says, okay, fine. I, I'm, hearing your, I'm hearing your prayer. I was responding with a yes, but here's what I want you to do. Uh, your, your army's too big. You got too many people on your side, and he's going, hey, we're already outnumbered. And he's like, no, 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 you're not outnumbered. You've got me. I want you to reduce that army. And so he reduces the army down from 32,000 now to 10,000. It's a massive reduction right there. And then God comes back and he says, hey, you know what, Gideon, uh, that was great, way to go, buddy. Uh, still too big, still too big. And he's like, what do you want me to do? He's like, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your army down to this water stream over here and I want you to go drink, have your army go get a drink. This is really, really weird. And he goes, the ones that come and they lap the water up, those are the ones that get to stick around and fight. And he's like, what? That doesn't even make any sense. And so he goes and he does it. There's 300 people left and he's like, good, that's all we need. You remember why he wanted to do it that way? I mean, God very specifically says in Judges chapter 7, he says, I want the people of Israel, I don't want them to boast, saying my own hand was able to save my life. I didn't want Israel, I'm establishing this reputation. I want you to understand I'm a God who saves, I'm a God who delivers, I'm a God who's present, I'm a God who's drawn near in covenant relationship, I'm a God who loves you, I'm a God who's going to take care of you, and I don't want you to become so arrogant that you think, hey, it was my hand that was mighty to save. And that's the story of scripture, church. He doesn't need the powerful. He doesn't need the almighty. He doesn't need the best of the best. And the, uh, the irony is that even the best of the best of this world is still a baby and an infant compared to him. That's exactly what he's saying here. Church, this is the story of scripture. Second Kings chapter 5. Right? You remember this beautiful story of Naaman, who was the commander of the Syrian army, these enemies of Israel, who was humbled by his Israelite slave girl living inside of his home. You remember his problem? Naaman has leprosy. And he has leprosy, he's not able to be healed, he doesn't know how to get help or anything like this. And the irony is that God uses his slave girl, which he oppresses all the time, who's living inside of his home, to show him the path, to, teach, to point him the way to the right prophet of Israel so that he can find physical and spiritual healing at the same time. And the great paradox of that story is that he's using the weak to bring down the powerful, that the powerful and the weak may be lifted up at the same time. It's what's happening all the time. The Samaritan woman at the well, despised by everybody, poor reputation, overlooked, not valued by anyone. John chapter 4, Jesus goes out of the way to go speak with her, to bring her value, to bring her dignity. And in the context of this conversation, her life is transformed, and God uses her to go and be one of the very first evangelists that you're going to find in all the Gospels. Mary Magdalene, seven demons inside of her, until she meets Jesus and goes on to become the apostle to the, all, all the apostles, the one who gets to proclaim the fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Church, that's what he does. He goes to the weak, he comes in and he makes weak people strong, and then through the mouths of babies and infants, he silences the enemy. Because he is the almighty king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He doesn't need your power or your strength. And the reality is that that is all who we are compared to an awesome God, babies and infants and stuff like that. And so the psalmist at the beginning of this thing is just marveling at this reality. He's going, this is who you are. This is who you are. You're the almighty holy one who is completely other than. You drew near to us in relationship. You saw me. You created relationship. You're a personal God. You're in charge of my life. And yet you still see me. And then not only that, you go to babies and you go to infants and you go to the humble and to the needy and to the despised, to the people that no one else in this world sees and you empower them and you strengthen them and you give them value and you give them dignity and in doing so, you accomplish your ways and you silence the enemy. I marvel at your name. How majestic is your name? And he's just worshiping. Like, and in the, middle of this, in the middle of this worship, you can see the psalmist just kind of go, like, none of this makes any sense. I, I'm so confused by the whole thing, yet I'm just marveling and wondering because this doesn't happen in the world that I live. 
And so in the verse, next verse 3, he's just kind of sitting there going, like, why in the world would a God who is that mighty and that strong, why would he pay attention to me? Like, why would he pay attention to me? And so he goes, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you'd even care for him? In other words, like, who am I that you'd even care? Like, why, why, do, you, why do you care about me? Why do you see me? I don't know if you've ever done this lately. You ever go out and um, you ever go look at the stars lately? Maybe you've got that telescope that's pretty awesome. Um, you, you ever go out there and, and look at the heavens? Uh, I mean, every time I go out there, and it's one of those beautiful nights. We're never in Dallas because you never see them here. But, uh, you know, I've heard about these beautiful places. Um, you go out there, and it's one of these nights where the stars are, like, right on top of you. Every single time you go out there and you gaze at the heavens, you're reminded. I am personally reminded of how small I really am. Right? I mean, you ever do that and get lost in the heavens and just be like, wow, your majesty is absolutely incredible. Neil Armstrong, he wrote about this, and uh, I love how he talked about it. He said, I remember on the way home on Apollo 11, isn't that how like every story begins? Anyway, I remember on the way home on Apollo 11, <laughs> we suddenly came to the tiny, pretty, and blue earth. I put my thumb up and I shut one eye, and my thumb blotted out the entire earth. But I didn't feel like a giant. I felt very, very, very small. Makes sense, right? I mean, he's out there in the, in the universe. He's just seeing the expanse. He's seeing darkness upon darkness and stars and galaxies and everything. I mean, scientists are telling us even today, uh, scientists are discovering, I think they found 500 solar systems in the Milky Way galaxy alone. It's kind of big. The observable universe is 100 billion galaxies. There's over 300 billion stars in the Milky Way by itself. The sun is 93 million miles away from us and a million times the size of the earth. Been watching Star Wars with Caleb lately. We're trying to get him ready for the new movie. We got a new one coming up. And I was like, all right, we're going to catch him up on the story so we can go see it together after Christmas and go enjoy that. I think he will. Um, I find my son's a very obsessive kid, and so now it's all Star Wars. I, I, it completely changed all the Christmas gifts and everything like that. Anyway, it's a different story for a different day. We've been watching the movies, and I love the, I love the imagination of George Lucas. I love the imagination, all the writers and everything there. I mean, they're doing their best to creatively express how large and giant the universe is. I mean, they, 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 it's like every time they're on the ship and all of a sudden, boom, we need to go into light speed. And they go to light speed and all of a sudden it takes them to a brand new planet, brand new galaxy, brand new stars and everything like that. It's exactly what he's marveling at right here. Your, 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 your universe is just absolutely enormous. And the irony of this is that a lot of people are going to take this today and they're going to say, okay, uh, they're going to use this actually as a reason for why the God of the Bible doesn't make any sense. And the way that the argument is going to play out, they're going to look at this and they're going to say, okay, well, you know what? The Bible was written during a time when everyone thought that humanity and the earth was the center of the universe, right? And so naturally we're going to believe, hey, I'm really valuable. I've got value and significance in my life because I'm at the center of it all. Naturally, God's going to think I'm awesome and I'm valuable and everything else. And then, however, science has come along and we've realized, hey, you know what, I'm not very big. I'm not at the center of the ball. In fact, I'm just a tiny little dot on the map of, the, of, the, of all the galaxies and everything like that. And, and so, therefore, how dare you believe that you've got any value or significance whatsoever? We're tiny, we're insignificant, and this, that, and the other. The irony of, a, of an objection kind of like that is that they're making an argument that assumes that human dignity and value have something to do with our size and capacity. And the, the, the reality is that it's not an argument that Scripture ever makes. I mean, you notice this in the psalm. The psalmist isn't looking at the heavens and going, man, those are some impressive stars, but did you see that house I built? 
Like, I, I mean, God, seriously, take a look. Like, I built an 11-foot table in my dining room. It's awesome. I built it with Rich Roberts. Did you see what I just built over here? Like, the, the psalmist isn't looking here and saying, hey, look at my portfolio. Look at my bank account. Look at these abs. Like, I've been working on these things for a long time. Like, this is incredible, right? This is amazing. Look at my haircut. It's amazing. Like, God, have you seen what I've done over here? Like, the psalmist is not looking at all that, saying, look at how significant and all the different contributions that I've made. He's just sitting there going, Lord, why in the world would you love someone like me? Why in the world would you, in all of this, in everything that you've created, all the unknown, all the known, in the middle of all that, even in the sea of humanity, even in the sea of Dallas, Texas, and how enormous it is, even in the middle of all that, how in the world would you look at me and give me value and dignity? And who in the world is man that you'd be mindful of him, the son of man that you'd care about him? Yet here it is, like you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you've crowned him with glory and honor. And the psalmist is marveling at this fact. Lord, it doesn't make sense. It's not how we give value today. It's not what we honor today. He's just worshiping right here. I didn't even have to earn it. I didn't even have to have to earn my value. I didn't have to do anything for it. Like we didn't have to do anything to get it. You simply just gave it to me just because you wanted to. You decided one day I'm going to crown humanity with glory and honor just because. And so he's just marveling and he's just worshiping. God, that doesn't make sense. No one does that in the world today. It's the reason why a lot of us who are very performance-minded, which is a fantastic in a lot of ways, rewards-driven culture that we're in, like a lot of us look at this and we're kind of going, hey, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I don't know that that's healthy. I mean, I remember the controversy years ago. There was a news outlet that came out and it was ripping Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, right? You remember this? Ripping Fred Rogers and calling him an evil, evil, evil man. You want to know why? Because, because he told children that they were valuable simply because they are. You're valuable, you're loved. Your life has dignity. Your life has worth. Why? Just because it does. Church, does that sound at all familiar to the Psalms? Does that sound at all familiar with the message of Scripture that says this, your value and your dignity isn't because of what you've earned, isn't because of something that you brought to the table, it's not because of your abs, your portfolio, your human dominance during your time here on earth, it's not because of any of those things, it's simply because I've crowned you with glory and honor. Like, that's what the psalmist is saying. Like, who am I that you'd even think about me? I don't even get it. I, yet here I am. You've made me a little lower than the angels. You've crowned me with glory and honor. And granted, church, like, it's confusing because we don't see this played out anywhere else in the world. But I think, like, I, I think we can see that a lot of value comes simply by being associated with someone great. I think we've seen this throughout the world. Like, a lot of our value, a lot of people's value, things that we value, they come from simply being associated with someone great. A little while ago, I found this on eBay um, a couple of years back. I don't know if you guys can see this at all. You hear what that says? <laughs> Kanye West Yeezus Tour uh, Air for sale. Church, that is a Ziploc bag full of air. Do you see what the price is? $60,000. $60,100. Some of you are going, hey, I've got retirement plans now. Like you're like, this is awesome. I'm going to pay for my kids' education like this. Yeah, I promise this is air from Kanye. This is dirt from Jesus' feet, right? I promise. I, I, so yeah, That's amazing. Where in the world does that value come from? It is only because it is associated with Kanye West. Church, like, I, that's what we're talking about right here. Like the ordinary has a way of becoming extraordinary when it is aligned with someone great. That's what, it, that's what happens all the time. Like value is amplified simply through association. It's why so many of you were so, so uh, it's why we care so much about the people that you wanted to hang out with in high school, junior high. You're trying to find your identity. The people that you hang out with and associate with, they have a way of lifting up your value in the eyes of other people. 
Like that's what happens. Church, like the ordinary becomes extraordinary when we're aligned with someone great. I used to uh, collect baseball cards as a kid. Anybody else a huge baseball, football, basketball card collector? I love it. Like I love um, Yarbrough. I know you got a huge collection, man. I love seeing that collection. I love this. True story. I sold a bunch of my baseball cards in high school uh, to buy a new car. Right, I didn't have, I was like, I gotta have some kind of transportation, and uh, I wanted this, and so I, and kids were doing like lemonade stands, I brought my baseball card collection out there, I sold a bunch of them. I had like Ken Griffey Jr. rookies, Ricky Henderson rookies, like Hall of Famers, that were, they were worth hundreds of dollars, and made, made a lot of money doing that. Like what in the world is the value of a baseball card? It's cardboard, it's cardboard. I mean, Honus Wagner right there, Honus Wagner, that's a 1909 to 1911 T206 Honus Wagner. Anyone wanna guess how much that thing's worth? million dollars that piece of paper right there with Honus Wagner like 7.5 million dollars was actually sold for 3.12 pretty good investment I guess right seven and a half the next one is a Topps 1952 Mickey Mantle right I had that card and sold it for I'm just kidding um (laughs) you know you know how much that one's worth seven uh that one's two and a half million dollars Two and a half million dollars for a Mickey Mantle. That one's a Babe Ruth on the end. It's the third most valuable card in the whole world. $1.35 million. Church, what in the world is the value of a baseball card? If not for the image that that, bear, that that card bears. It has everything to do with whose image that card bears. It is cardboard, church. That, that card did absolutely nothing. There's nothing valuable in and of itself right there except for the image that that card bears. It is the story of Scripture. Genesis 1 is going to say every single man, woman, and child has been created in the image of God and given inherent dignity and value as such an image bearer of God. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, healthy or not, white, black, brown, yellow, red, everything in between, Republican or Democrat, Christian or Muslim. Every single man, woman, and child has been given inherent dignity and value as such an image bearer of God. It's why we marvel at our human dignity. It's why the psalmist is sitting there saying, how majestic is your name, oh God, this doesn't even make sense. This doesn't even make sense. How in the world would you value me? What can I bring to the table when you speak and universes come into being? What, my table? Really? My abs? For real? Like, what in the world am I contributing to this thing? How in the world do you value me? Yet that's exactly what you've done. You crowned me with glory and with honor. And you can see the psalmist just cry out, God, it doesn't make any sense. It's why I'm marveling how majestic is your name, O oh God, in all the earth. You would see me. You would see me. And through the mouths of babies and infants, you would glorify your name. Like you don't even need the kings of all kings. Like you don't even need me, David, the one writing this psalm who has more power and authority than anyone else in the land. You don't need me, the awesome one. You saw me and you loved me and you gave me dignity when I was a shepherd in the field and my father didn't even remember me when you came knocking on the door. I had value and I had dignity right then. And the church, before you start thinking, hey, you know what, this is dangerous. I don't know that we need to be telling a generation of kids that there's value and dignity apart from what they do. You're gonna create an entitled culture. You're gonna create a lazy culture. I mean, the very next verses, there is responsibility attached with this dignity. He says it right there in verse six, you have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You put all things underneath his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, like the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the sea. Like there's responsibility given to image bearers of God, people who've been crowned with glory and honor to take care of others who've been crowned with glory and honor and everything else that he's created. It's the same thing back in Genesis 1. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let, us, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every other creeping thing. 
Church, that's the responsibility that's given to man. Genesis 9, 6, we, you and I are told not to kill other human beings. You want to know why? It's because they're made in the image of God. In James, chapter, in James chapter 3, we're told not to curse another human being. You know why? It's because they're made in the image of God. In other words, you and I, don't, we don't disparage other people. We don't take to Twitter. We don't take to Facebook. We don't take to Instagram and rip people apart. No matter how they voted, no matter what they look like, no matter what their views may be, you can deal with ideas while valuing people at the same time. And he's saying you don't even curse other people simply because they're made in the image of God. Church, there's responsibility to give in to, to, to image bearers of God. People have been crowned with glory and honor to take care of others that have also been crowned with glory and honor as well as the rest of creation. There's an enormous responsibility given here. That's why Paul's going to say in Ephesians, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. You want to know who you are as a human being? You've been handcrafted by God. We are his workmanship. He's a woodsman kind of person. Like He, he creates you. He, he thought about you. He brought you into being. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of doing good works. In other words, laziness and entitlement, those things are never part of the equation. They're never part of the equation. There's responsibility given to image bearers and people who've been crowned with glory and honor to take care of others who've been crowned with glory and honor as well as the rest of creation. That's why Micah 6.8, the prophet Micah is asking of the Lord, he's saying, hey, this is a bad time for the nation of Israel. You remember this? This is just before the Assyrian captivity. Things are going bad. The, the Israelites are about to walk in judgment because they have largely forgotten the Lord. And he says, okay, Lord, what do you want from us? What do you want us to do? What do you want us to do? How do we turn this ship around? And remember what he says, he says, should I, should I come before you with burnt offerings and a calf that's a year old? He's like, no, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't need your sacrifices. Will you be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? No, it's not really about money. I don't need your money. Should I offer my firstborn for the transgressions, for the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? No, I don't, I don't want your religious activity. And so Mike is just like, Lord, what do you want us to do? How do we turn this thing around? You remember what he says? Very, very simply, do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with the Lord. That's it. Israel, you, you, you want to know how to walk with me again? You want to know how to find favor again? That's it. Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with the Lord. That's what you've forgotten to do. You've forgotten how to care for other people who have also bear my image. You've forgotten how to pay attention to other people who have also been crowned with glory and honor that have dignity and value. You've forgotten how to care for those people and to lift them up, to listen to their cries. You've name-called, you've diminished, you've overlooked, you've cast them aside. You don't pay attention to the sick, you don't pay attention to the widow, to the orphan, to the elderly. They've lost their value. That's what I want you to do. Do justice, love, mercy, walk humbly with the Lord. That's what you've forgotten to do all these years. You've forgotten how to reflect the God whose image you bear. I mean, George, like, that's what God has done for us. In his majesty and in his might, he has extended mercy by crowning us with dignity and honor irregardless of our capacities. It's the story of God. It's wrapped up in his name. We see it as he empowers infants and babies to still the enemy. And we see it as he's crowned humanity with glory and honor. And so it's exactly what he calls us to do too. There's a responsibility to given us to do the exact same thing. We love the small. We care about the orphan. We care about starving people, whether it's in our very backyard or halfway around the world. Came across an article this past week from Time Magazine. It was titled, Why Down Syndrome is on the Decline. I don't know if you can read that. Why Down Syndrome is on the Decline. New prenatal blood tests can inform pregnant women as early as 10 weeks that their fetus may have Down Syndrome. 
In other words, it's not that we found a cure. It's not that it's gone away. It's just that doctors are detecting it much earlier on, and they're coming to parents, and they're saying, okay, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? You want to end it or keep going? Like, what do you want to do? Like, it, like, the, like, there's a decision to be made right here. And meanwhile, the article continues to go on and it says, like, there's never been a better time for people with Down syndrome to, to thrive in, in, in our world today. There's communities, there's support groups, there's schools, there's all these things. And they go, on, like, by the way, church, you and I know this, like, there's nothing deficient about a child with Down syndrome. Like, they bring a joy and a love and a perspective to the world that none of us have. And some of you, you know that firsthand. Like, you know the value that's right there. I remember talking with a couple a little while ago who was facing this decision. And they came back to the little meeting with their doctor. And they said, hey, here's the reality of the test. And it's likely that they're going to have downs. What do you want to do? And I love the mom's response. She just said, what do you want me to do? You're talking about my kid. This is my kid. Dignity and value in my child. An image bearer of God is going to have a future. What do you want me to, like, this is, there's no choice. There's, this, there's nothing to decide. This is an image bearer of God. Church, it's exactly what we're talking about right here. It's why the elderly have dignity, no matter what they're able to accomplish later in life. Like, we, we fight for the abused. We care about the abused. Because it's not right. Because they're image bearers of God. They need to be lifted up and heard. We see the homeless. We see the homeless. We look them in their eyes. We talk to them. We care about them, whether they created their own mess or not. Like, we care about them. We listen to them. We love them. We let them know, hey, you are an image bearer of God, whether you've showered or not, whether your clothes are clean or not. We love you. We care about you. There's a God in heaven who still gives you vic get dignity. He has crowned you with glory and with honor. Like, we teach the immigrant. We feed them. We take care of their kids, no matter how they got here. And you can have your political opinions and stuff like that, but no matter where they come from, we treat people as image bearers of God given inherent dignity and value. And we love their kids. We, we care for their kids. We lift them up. Like we, we welcome the, well, the refugee, people who have had their homes stripped from them and have nowhere else to go, that have wound up in our backyard and that have come here. Like we care about them and we love them. And we invest in for the nations. We go there, we serve, we teach them English, we help with job training, we help them get acclimated here in Dallas. We care about the unborn, we care about humanity. We will gladly feed starving children, whether they're here in Richardson, Texas, or halfway around the world. Why? Because they're image bearers of God, and they've been crowned with glory and honor and dignity and value. And as such image bearers of God, he has given us this responsibility to go and to do the exact same thing for the rest of his creation. It's not a complicated sermon. There's nothing complicated about it, except that it's incredibly unusual. The psalmist is just worshiping. And he's marveling because the story of God and what he's done for us doesn't make any sense. He doesn't see it in his world. And guess what, church? 3,000 years later, it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. His story is still the same. We overlook people. We don't care about people. We cast them off. They're less than. They're not quite as worthy. They're not quite as deserving. So he wraps up the entire psalm the same way that he begins. And he just says, oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, and he's just worshiping because it's just not often that you see greatness and power come together in genuine acts of mercy. You don't see greatness and power very often stoop, stoop down and, and love someone who's not deserving. I mean, it's why we marvel at it every time we see it in our celebrities. Like, we, we do. It's like there's news stories, and we, we'll throw a parade and everything, giving trophies 
uh, Johnny Depp. He goes to uh, children's hospitals all the time, and I love this. He'll, uh, he'll dress up as <laughs> Captain Jack Black, and he'll just pop in on children's hospitals, right? And he'll just go visit kids and cheer up their day and just go love them and enjoy them and stuff like that. And you read that, and you're like, that is awesome. Like, how cool would it be to see Captain Jack Black show up at your hospital room and stuff like that, right? Like, it's amazing. You look at that, and you're like, that's a genuine good deed. Like, that's a wonderful thing that he's doing. Like, people do this all the time. Chris Evans, Chris Platt, Pratt. I believe his name is like Captain America right there. Like, how cool would it be to have Captain America come to your hospital room? My personal hero is Tim, he- Tim Tebow, doing this all the time. If I ever get sick, please send Tim my way. Um, <laughs> like, that's my, my, my personal hero right there. Um, like he's do- just doing this all the time. When we look at those stories, church, and we see when people who, are, who have status, people who have power, people who have options, as we've defined those things today, right? We, we, we marvel at the fact that they would come, that they would take time to care for someone, because it's just not very often that it happens. And so Jesus picks up on this exact same thing. And the beauty of the psalm is that the story of God doing that exactly for us and his names and everything else, it doesn't end with the psalm. Like Jesus picks up on this in Matthew chapter 21. And you know the story in the Gospels. It's Matthew 21. It's Palm Sunday. He's just saying to come into Jerusalem as the conquering king on the back of a donkey, Right? The conquering king on the back of a donkey, and everyone's shouting. They're lining the streets saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. And you remember what he does. He goes straight to the temple as soon as he gets in there. And he goes into the, table, the temple, and he cleans out all the money changers and all the corrupt religious practices going on there. And he wipes it out. And he says, you guys are so far from the heart of God and from the heart of authentic worship that you have no business even being in here. And I want you to notice who else comes to him immediately next. In verse 14, it says, the blind and the lame, they came to him in the temple. Those are the people that are constantly drawn to Jesus. And Jesus is welcoming them in and he's bringing them in. And it says in verse 15, when the chief priests, the scribes, they saw the wonderful things that he did, the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, it says that they were indignant. They were angry and they were furious. Because that might create entitled kids that think that they're loved when they didn't, der- deserve, they didn't earn anything, they didn't do anything to deserve it. And so it says that they were indignant. And they said to Jesus, and they said, hey, Jesus, do you hear what these kids and people are saying? <laughs> He's like, Did I? yes, I've heard this. And he says this in verse 16. He says, yes, have you not read Psalm 8, essentially? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And Jesus goes back and he quotes this psalm. And the people are sitting there going, they're indignant even worse. Like, do you know what you're saying? Like, that could be very, very arrogant if it were not true. But it's exactly what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying right here, what you don't understand is that that psalm is all about me. I am the majestic one who's created the stars. My glory dwells among the heavens. I am the mighty one who stills the enemy through the mouths of babies and infants. I am the, the merciful son of man who made himself for a little while lower than the angels in order to take on our weakness, not only as the son of God, but also as the representative son of man that the enemy would be stilled through the one final act of mercy and might. God taking on flesh and becoming weak for you and for me. That we who are weak may be strong in him. It's the gospel message. It's a story that we tell at Christmas. God in his infinite glory, whose glory spreads to the heavens, became weak, took on flesh, became a baby, suffered, bled, and died, that you and I may be perfect and complete in him. It's a story that the early church picked up on and and drove them for centuries. 
In fact, one, Roman em- one of the Roman emperor's spies, he had a bunch of spies to go and spy on the Christian community and to report back to the Roman emperor, what's happening with the Christians? Like, what's happening with the Christians? And one of the spies wrote back to him, and uh, here's what he reported. He said, well, they love one another. They don't neglect widows. You want to know what's happening in the Christian community in the first couple of centuries? They don't neglect widows. Orphans, they rescue from those who are cruel to them. If they see a traveling stranger, they bring them underneath the roof. And if they hear that one of them is imprisoned or oppressed by their opponents, for the sake of their Christ's name, all of them take care of all of their needs. If possible, they set them free. They exist in the flesh, but they don't live by the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They love all men, and they're persecuted by all. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They lack everything, and yet they overflow in everything. Church, that was the reputation of the church in the first few centuries. That was, the reputa- that was their reputation among people that hated them and wanted them gone. But they loved everyone that they came into contact with. They didn't ignore the widows, the orphans. They saw the little guy. They cared about the sick. They cared about the oppressed. They cared about those who were wrongfully imprisoned. And they fought to set them free. And so the reality is that the gospel, as you know, it just explodes on the scene. Because the reality of the Christmas story is that the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who spoke the universe into existence, the God whose glory dwells throughout the heavens is also the God who took on flesh and became a baby born in a manger for us. And it's a story that doesn't make any sense. And it's a story that we sit there and as we think about what God did this Christmas, it should make us marvel and it should make us worship that that God who did all that still somehow sees me. And he sees me in my weakness and he sees me in my brokenness. He sees me in my sinfulness and in my separation from him. And in the middle of that place, he still saw me and loved me to the point that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to be born of a virgin, to take on weakness, to suffer, bleed, and die, conquer death three days later, walking out of that tomb alive, that any and all who call on him in faith would be saved and have life with him now and for all of eternity. So I don't know what your Christmas traditions are this year. I don't really know what stories you like to tell. My hope and prayer is that that's the story that you tell this year. You need a Christmas story to tell your kids. The God who created all that is the God who did that. So I don't know if you've ever wondered, hey, who am I? Do I have value or dignity? I don't know if that's it, but if you've ever needed a reminder of your own dignity, all you need to do is look at the man or look at the universe and be reminded that if you are in Christ, to know that in Christ, the one whose glory is spread throughout the heavens, he decided to take on flesh. And in his mercy, he became weak so that you could become strong. If you've ever needed to hold on to any value, it's all right there in that story. Church, my hope and my prayer this Christmas for you is that you would remember that story. My prayer is that we would be a church that knows how to love as God has loved us as God has loved other image bearers of God, as God has loved others who have also been crowned with honor and glory throughout the ends of the earth. My hope and prayer is that we would be a church much like the psalmist that's able to sing, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. That we would look at this story, that we would marvel this Christmas. That it wouldn't just be gifts and fun holidays and things like that. That we would truly marvel at the story of his name.